We find ourselves tonight in uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Let me read it, and we will pray and get started on God's promises to Israel cannot be canceled, or not canceled, God's partial setting aside of Israel. Verse 1, I ask them, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know the scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to take my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have left 7,000 men for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of insensitivity, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their feasting become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. Wow. Let's pray. Father, we come this evening and we thank you once again for your wonderful love and care for us. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to live in such a time as this. Uh, we recognize, Lord, that as we look out, um, seeing what's going on uh, could definitely bring some angst, some anxiety. But we also recognize, Lord, that you are the God that raises up and puts down nations, and you judge righteously. And as we consider even our own sins as Christians, we recognize that judgment coming upon this nation is righteous. Lord, we, we love the country that you've blessed us with. We would love to see things change, but we also know that that's probably not in the cards. So we would ask that you would give us grace to learn to live in such a way that regardless of the outside pressures, that we would honor and glorify you. Thank you again for the uh, mercy and grace that you give to us. Open our eyes to understand the things that you have for us in your word tonight. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, God's promises to Israel not canceled. God's partial setting aside of Israel. So letter A. God's, God is faithful and can be trusted. This is a teaching in the scriptures from the beginning to the end. God can be trusted. Let me read, and I know it's a handful of scriptures, but I think it's important that you catch this from a lot of different writers. Joshua twenty three fourteen, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all of your hearts and in all of your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Now Joshua is getting ready to pass and he's speaking to Israel. And what's he saying? Everything that God said is happening the way God said it was going to happen. 
Okay? Psalm 31.5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. Well, whether David is the writer or one of the sons of Korah or Asaph, uh, I assume it's David. But once again, he's entrusting his soul to God. Why? Because God is the God of truth. Um, 1 Kings 8, 55 and 56. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There is not, uh, There has not failed one word of all the good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. Now this is 400 years later that Solomon is speaking. I assume it's Solomon First 1 Kings 8. Um, whole point being, though, uh, God has not failed in anything that he said. God is trustworthy. He's faithful. He does what he says he's going to do. Let's go to the New Testament. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Once again, you can trust what God says. Uh, Titus 1, 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. God is faithful. He cannot lie. Hebrews 12.23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Okay, in that particular verse, you see that what God has done among men, he has done what he said he was going to do. Uh, these men have been made perfect. They're uh, the part of the general assembly of the church, etc. Okay, now, with that in mind, repeated truth in Scripture, let's consider the new covenant. Now, if you'd like to, please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. Keep your finger in Romans 11. We're coming back here. But Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 37. I know we've gone through this a few times in the past. I find repetition, repetition, repetition is one of the ways that we learn. And sometimes uh, it takes two or three times before, bing, the light goes on and we, oh, yeah, now I see it. And maybe you got it the first time. Hallelujah. Uh, but uh, it, this does apply to what we're talking about tonight. So Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Okay, so let's just 
Well, I'll get there. I'll get there. Let's finish up the passage. Verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if heaven can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Now, with that, let's take a look at our outline here. First of all, we understand that this new covenant has been made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay? Now, again, if it just said Israel, we might be able to twist that and say we're spiritual Israel, and therefore it applies to us. No, 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 no. He's making it with the house of Israel. That would be the northern ten tribes. And the house of Judah, that's the southern two, uh, two tribes. That's talking about Jewish people. Okay? Uh, letter B. The contents deal with what he will do so that they can truly be his people in verses 32 through 34. He is going to write his law on their, on their minds, on their hearts. Uh, he's going to give them a new spirit, give them a new heart, put his spirit within them. And I, I'm uh, reading a little bit from Ezekiel 36 also, but it's basically saying the same kind of thing. And they're going to be his people and he's going to be their God. Okay? Uh, it's not as though at that point, at the time when it's all implemented, that they're going to sit there and say, well, I don't think so. I do think it is interesting, and, and, I, and I hope you're grabbing with excitement this concept. God wants to be your God. He wants you to be his people, okay? It, God's always been about having fellowship with his created beings, we're the problem in that whole thing, okay? And here, the new covenant, I'm going to make it happen. See, the old covenant was, if you do this, I'm going to do this. If you don't do this, I'm going to do this. The new covenant, you don't get to, it's not about you. It's he's going to do it, he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Why? So that it'll get done. Because the first one, they broke. So he's going to do it. So there's no breaking it, Okay. So uh, the new covenant and all the promises of God to Israel of a future kingdom. Oh, that's letter D. I'm, I'm on letter C. Let's go back to letter C. The only way he will not accomplish this new covenant is listed in 35 through 37. So in 35, we have the sun being a light by day, and we have the moon and the stars being a light by night. God said so. It's going to happen. Now, if that stops happening... Then and only then will he not restore Israel. Okay, it hasn't happened yet. Jupiter's going to be closer tomorrow night than, uh, the, than f uh, for the last 59 years. Won't be this close again for another 107. So let's go outside and watch uh, Jupiter. Cool. And it's going to be in the place where it's really going to be reflecting the sunlight. So if you've got a telescope or some good binoculars, you might actually be able to see Jupiter and four of its moons going around it. Interesting. Cool, right? But why is that happening? Because God set it up as an ordinance. And if that stops, then God won't. The other thing he says, uh, he says, if you can measure the heavens. I'm looking at possibly doing another lawn for a doctor. And I go over and I look at the place. It's kind of like, what's it, about 100 feet deep and 250 feet across? And Jonathan goes, 150 feet deep, 300 feet across. And I go, no, I don't think it's a whole football field. It's close, but not quite. And we're trying to figure out how much to charge him for all this. And uh, wow, I don't have a measuring wheel. I, we need to get a measuring wheel so we can go, zzz, zzz, okay, this much per square foot, that kind of thing. Um, 
okay, fine. Where's heaven so that you can measure it? Well, it's up there. Where? We've got some pretty good telescopes. We haven't been able to see it. Maybe because it's right in front of your face, but in a different dimension. We don't know. All we know is if you can't find it, you can't measure it, right? And let me see. If we're talking about the universe, you know what we know about the universe? It's big. I mean, we're guesstimating that that star over there is about 50 million light years away. That's distance, not time. Okay? How big is 50 million light years? Yeah, we're not going there right now. Whole point being is that one's one of the closer ones. Those other ones are really, really far. Okay, we, we can't measure it. It is so big. So if you're talking about the physical heavens, yeah, we can't measure that. Oh, what about the foundations of the world? You know, when I think of a foundation, I think of, you know, the, the rock or concrete structure that's underneath a building. You can see part of it sticking out of the ground. That's easy to measure. Where's the earth's foundation? And after we get a couple of miles down, before we get to the foundation, how hot does it get? My understanding is it gets pretty hot the further you go down, and we haven't even gotten close to what we can't find. So how are we going to measure it? But if you can do those two things, then and only then will I give up on Israel for the things they have done. Notice, he points out, these people are not guiltless. They have done a lot of things that as a God, I should just say, but I'm not going to unless you can do these things. And since no one can do them, what can we expect of the new covenant? It is going to be implemented with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay? Now, letter D. Since the conditions of verses 35 through 37 have now, and I don't think can be fulfilled, if God does not fulfill verses 31 through 34 for Israel and Judah... If the new covenant and all the promises of God to Israel of a future kingdom with them being elevated among the nations, if you just spiritualize that and apply it to the church, then here's the conclusion. You cannot trust God for your salvation. Because he has said, I am going to save you. I'm going to cleanse you from all your sins. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And then I, the spirit is the down payment promising that I'm going to complete the job. But all we got to do is spiritualize some of that. And can you be guaranteed? Not if you want to change the hermeneutic. Okay? And, and that's what some of our brothers have done. They've changed the hermeneutic. Instead of interpreting it literally, they spiritualize it, allegorize it, and say all of that is spiritualized and it applies to the church. There is no future kingdom. The kingdom is in our heart today. I don't have a problem with the concept of the kingdom being in our heart, that we're members of the kingdom of God right now in a spiritual sense. But there's no lion laying down with the lamb. There's acid indigestion. Okay, but there's no lion laying down with the lamb inside of me. Okay, my, my spiritual nature isn't laying down with my old nature and everything's kosher. No, see what I mean about when you allegorize, when you spiritualize, you take away the meaning and therefore God cannot be trusted if that's the case. I don't believe it's the case. 
I believe, yes, kingdom of God in our hearts today. Cool, I understand that. Future kingdom for Israel, where Israel is the elevated nation. They're the ones that get all of the blessings, and everybody else is going, cool, can I follow you? I want to get to know the Lord a little bit better. That's all still to come. Paradise, earth, the whole thing. Okay, so number three, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. The word for cast away here is apotheomai, uh, to push off, to reject, to cast away, to put away from, to thrust away from. It's in the middle voice indicating thrusting away from oneself. So if someone got a little bit too close to you and you pushed them like that, by the way, this part of the arm is twice as big as this part of the arm, so it actually has more power. That's the idea. You're pushing away. Um, that, that would be what would happen. You'd be pushing that person away from yourself. Due to the rejection of the Messiah, God temporarily sets aside Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. And if you look in your uh, chapter 11, we're back at Romans now. Back in chapter 11, verse 25, we see, so then that you will not be conceited, brothers. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So what does that mean? Israel as a nation has been set aside. They've been hardened. They've been blinded. There's a veil over their eyes. They're not seeing the truth of things until all of the Gentiles that God wants to save in the church age have come in. When the church age comes to its end, then God starts working on Israel again. Then we have the 12,000 from each tribe. Then we have Israel as a nation starting to uh, recognize, whoa, things are going on here. And by the time of the end of seven years, they're looking on him whom they've pierced and they're mourning like someone who's lost a son because they're realizing as a nation, we rejected that one. And even then, all of Israel is going to be saved, but not all of Israel is Israel, as we've already pointed out in our previous chapters. So uh, notice afterward, all Israel will be saved. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I just said that, didn't I? Let's look at the next verse, verse 26. Uh, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And what covenant is that? The new covenant. That's when Israel is going to finally be uh, participating in the covenant with God that he told them about a long time ago, and we get to participate in even now. So notice, uh, has God cast away his people? Letter B, certainly not. We have seen this word. I, I think it's used like 26 times in the book of Romans, and it's meganoitu. Uh, may it never be. This is the strongest negative in the Greek language. This is like a triple negative. You know, you, a double negative means the opposite. So let's throw one more in there uh, just for emphasis. Uh, in Portuguese, there are a couple of different words for never. One means never. And the other one means never. That's the idea here. <laughs> okay? It could never happen that way. End of subject. So that brings us to letter B, the truth about Paul. 
This is Paul's first proof that God has not cast away his people. He says, for I also am an Israelite. Now, he's not mentioning the vast number of uh, believers in the church that already exists. Most of them are Jewish people at this point. Now, there's going to come a point where Gentiles are going to outnumber the Jews in the church. But think about it. Back there in... uh, uh, are we still on? Yeah, we're still on. Uh, back there in Acts chapter 2. How many people got saved? 3,000 men. Now, who's hanging around Jerusalem that 3,000 men are going to get saved on Pentecost, a Jewish holiday? Who's hanging around Jerusalem? Jewish people, okay? Now, uh, a little while later, you got Acts chapter 6 where there's a problem in the church, they resolve the problem in the church, and 5,000 more people come into the church. Gentiles are not accepted into the church until chapter 10, 11. All the people that are getting saved initially are all Jewish people. And then God kind of has to open the apostles' eyes to, hey, this ain't about you Jewish people. This is about everybody. And like I say, that happens with uh, the sheet that comes down with all the unclean animals. Rise up, Peter, kill and eat. Oh, no, Lord, I'm too holy for that. God says, what I say is holy, you don't call unholy. Oh, by the way, some guys are coming. I want you to go with them. Goes and preaches to Cornelius, bing, bang, bong. And when he uh, returns, the Jewish people are saying, you went into a Gentile's house? Let me tell you a story. And he lets them know what happened. And then he says, and the Spirit of God came on them, and they did just like we did when we first believed. Acts chapter 2. They spoke in tongues. These Gentiles spoke in tongues. Tongues is a sign to the unbeliever. Who are the unbelievers? The believing Jews. They needed a sign from God saying, yeah, Gentiles can get saved too. So I, not talking about all the other Jewish people, just talking about me here, letter B, Paul's conversion after being the most radical persecutor of the church shows that God saves Israelites, that the church is presently made up of mostly Jewish people. But notice he saved one of the worst guys that you'd want to save. Let's go find all the people that think we're okay, and, and we'll save them. But those guys that are persecuting people and killing people, no, 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 no. That's how we'd be looking at it. And God says, oh yeah, watch this. Okay? So he saves Paul. Notice he not only says, I'm an Israelite, he goes on to say that he's of the seed of Abraham. In other words, he is not a proselyte to Judaism. He is a Jew by birth. 2 Corinthians 11.22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are, are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Okay, And then of last but not least, he says that he's of the tribe of Benjamin, Philippians 3, 4 to 6. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, catch this, blameless. 
you couldn't accuse Paul of breaking anything within the law, even though he does accuse himself in Romans chapter 7 back there. But looking at him from the outside, he was perfect. But he's not talking about that. He's saying, I'm also a Benjamite. That brings us to letter C. The truth about the remnant in verses 2 through 7a, this is the second proof that God has not uh, cast away his people. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now, we've already talked about uh, foreknowing back there in uh, uh, chapter 8 a little bit, uh, verse 29 and 30, I believe it is. Uh, the word cast away, God has not cast away. That's the one that we already pointed out where there's a pushing off, pushing them away from yourself. Uh, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. The word foreknew is prognosco. Uh, this is where we get the word uh, prognosticate, okay? Uh, what does it mean to prognosticate? When a doctor uh, has a uh, prognosis, he's basically telling you, here's how we're going to treat it. This is what we're going to do from here to here, okay? It has the same kind of meaning here. Notice, to know beforehand, to foresee, to foreknow, to ordain, to know before. This is not simply knowing beforehand, but determining it will come to pass. Remember, the prognosis of the doctor is, here's the treatment that we're going through. Bing, bang, bong. Okay? There's going to be eight weeks of chemo, uh, eight weeks of radiation. We know that this is what's going to happen if you live through it. Okay? But he's guessing on the how long it's going to all be, but he knows this is the plan I've got. Well, in God's case, it's not... Uh, looking down through the time and, oh, yeah. No, no, he's determining ahead of time. Here's, uh, I, I know these people. I'm going to make this come to pass. It also carries the idea of intimacy. The word gnosis or gnosko, uh, where God know, uh, Adam knew his wife. God knows his people. It's, it's that kind of intimacy. And then number three, Peter describes their delivery of the delivery of Jesus to die as a predetermined plan in Acts 2.22, uh, 2.23. Him, talking about Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge, same word, of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death. Notice, they're responsible for the act, but it was all part of God's plan. So Israel... He foreknew it's part of God's plan that they're not going to be cast away, pushed away. But we see a little bit further, uh, Israel is the only nation that God has foreknown or predetermined to be his people. What other people as a nation did he say that about? No. I'm Irish, French, Indian, English, and Scottish. Indian being American Indian, okay? Uh, not Indian Indian. <laughs> um, let me see. Mike, what are you? Well, at least we know the Irish people have been chosen by God, right? <laughs> I'm not sure about the German because I'm not German. Uh, 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 Sheila, what about you? Whoa, we've got a little Bohemian in there, okay? Whole point being is if we went around, we find that Dave's got a little bit of Israel in him, okay? Um, Lynn, you're German and Irish and, and English. 
So she's got a couple of the good ones in there too. <laughs> you know, we, we look at things like that, but the reality is God has not said, well, I'm choosing the German people. Oh, I'm choosing the American people. Oh, I'm choosing, no, no, he chose Israel. He foreknew Israel as a nation. And again, it's obvious that he's saying as a nation, because if you look at the individuals within the nation, yeah, a bunch of them, they didn't get it. Okay, if you think about God taking them out of Egypt as a nation, that would be like taking one of us out of the world as an individual. We're saved, right? And then they're baptized into Moses as they go through the Red Sea. That's kind of like us being baptized spiritually and then in water, right? Uh, So as a nation, if you look at what he did with them, you're going to see how God works in the sanctification process in the individual. But they didn't all believe how many of them died in the wilderness. All but two. Only two of that first generation went into the land. All the kids and grandkids went into the land, but none of the adults that came out. Why? Because they didn't believe. So though the nation was foreknown, the individuals within it, not necessarily so. Okay, let's move on to the second page here. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, so here's Elijah's complaint, Lord, they have killed your prophets, and they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And again, if you're interested, 1 Kings 19, 10, and 14. Okay? Uh, Here's God's response, or the divine response. Uh, The word there is krematismos, divine response, revelation, the answer of God. And it is interesting, God actually speaks to Elijah at this point. He says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Again, 1 Kings 19, 18. In, uh, uh, to Isaiah, God said that most of his hearers would not listen or repent. Only a small remnant would repent. And what is 7,000 out of a nation of a few million? A small remnant. So you see that God, throughout his plan, he always has this believing group in the generation that left Egypt, not the children and grandchildren. There was two. Now, Moses obviously was a believer, but somewhere in the rush didn't honor God. Aaron, believer, somewhere in the rush a few times, didn't honor God. Miriam, I'm pretty sure we could say she was a believer. Somewhere in the rush didn't honor God. But there was a bunch of people that uh, you have a hard time saying they were some kind of a believer. They were Israel, but they weren't believers. So God's response, he always has a remnant. Number three, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Okay, Romans 9.27. So let's go back a page here. We see, but Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israel's sons are like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. And again, this is talking about future. When Christ comes back, apparently only about a third of the nation of Israel is actually going to be all of Israel that's going to be saved. Two-thirds, out, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to be believers. 
Hmm. Interesting. But God has promised there's always going to be that uh, remnant according to the election of grace. So notice the word election of grace. Uh, the word for election there is ekloge, divine selection, chosen election. When we uh, uh, see in Ephesians 1.4 that we've been chosen from before the foundations of the world, uh, it is a form of this word. It's the concept of the elect. I have heard Christians say, I don't believe in election. Uh, it's funny, the Bible talks about election, both Old and New Testament. Obviously, there is a biblical doctrine of election. Uh, where our problem comes in is we don't understand always how to fit it together with free will. And especially the ones that struggle with the free will aspect, I find almost always there's someone that they love that they want to see saved. And they're afraid they're not one of God's elect. I mean, God might not save the person that I want to be saved. Stop worrying about it. It's not your job. It's your job to live it and tell them about it and let God soften or harden, because that's who's doing it. I will harden whom I will harden. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Does God not know better than we do? Oh. Now, they do have a certain measure of free will. Which direction will it go? We don't know. Let's trust God with that. Let's live it and tell Him. That's our job. Okay? So, Obviously, there is an elect. Now, notice that this is an election of grace. In other words, it's not an election by works. Okay? Uh, Romans 4, 4 through 5. Let me get that page out here for you. says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Who does God, un uh, who does God justify? The ungodly. One of the things I find that a lot of Christians have a hard time uh, admitting, in order for you to be saved, you've got to be ungodly. Now, that doesn't mean you ought to stay that way, obviously, but we want to think that, well, I wasn't that bad and, and God saved me. No, you were that bad, and that's why God had to save you, okay? Uh, he justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. How about Galatians 5.4? You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, in this particular book, Paul is not talking to unbelievers that are trying to uh, gain salvation through the works of the law. He's actually talking to believers who are returning to the law so that they might be justified. Or, if you will, so they might be acceptable to God. I am so thankful for Ephesians 1.6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, who made us acceptable in the Beloved. Not in the doing of the law, in Christ. Are you in Christ? You're acceptable to God. Are you blowing it? God loves you like a father and is going to deal with that. Okay? It doesn't make you less acceptable. Christ took care of the acceptable part. Now we're learning how to walk with him. 
Okay, so uh, Paul is saying, uh, if you try and be justified before God through the works of the law, you've fallen from grace. How about Titus 3, 5? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Oh, by the way, washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit. Go back to Ezekiel 36. You'll see that these are part of the new covenant. You're going to be sprinkled with water and made clean. Cool. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3? You got to be born of the water and of the Spirit. Not talking about fleshly birth and spiritual birth. He's talking about spiritual birth in both cases. Because that's what he's talking about, that new covenant. And so once again, we see it is of grace, not of works. Otherwise, uh, some of your versions, now my version did not have that in there. That's okay. Uh, I'll explain in a moment. But some of your versions say, otherwise, work is no longer work. Okay? So it's an election of grace, not of works. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Uh, believe, uh, this is believed to have been a copier's uh, note in the column uh, that found its way into the text. Boy, I didn't write that very well on the notes. Believed to be a copier's not note that found its way into the text. So as uh, people were copying the text, they see this copier's note and they made it part of the text instead of uh, having a little dash off to the side saying, yeah, this is what people think. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Look, if it comes down to uh, election by grace or election by works, the Bible is clear all the way through. It's election. God choosing you from before the foundations of the world based on his grace, not based on anything that's found in you. Okay, so that brings us to the what then. Okay, Uh, for even so, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. The word for seeks there is epizeteo, to search or inquire for, to demand, to crave, desire, inquire, seek after or to seek for. Um, The Jews of Paul's day were radically religious with a focus on their own righteousness. How do I know? Well, what did Paul say in Romans 10, 2 and 3? For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Oh, so they were very radical in their religion, in their trying to set up their own righteousness, but they were not doing it by faith. But what does it say? But the elect have obtained it. How did they obtain it? Graciously, because of God's grace. Not because somehow they were better than the the radical Jews of Paul's day. It was all because of God's grace. So that brings us to the truth. We've seen the truth about Paul, the truth about the remnant, now the truth about revelation. This is the third proof that God has not cast off his people. It says, and the rest were blinded. The word blinded there is perou, to petrify, to endurate, to render stupid or callous, to blind, to hardened, and it's in the passive voice, so that means it's caused by an outside force. So these people were blinded by an outside force. 
So just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Does that not sound like a bunch of politicians? Okay, and, and obviously it's not talking about politicians. It's talking about Israel. Notice Deuteronomy 24.9, 29.4. Sorry about that. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. Moses speaking to the nation that's before him. They have seen God do wonders to bring them out of Egypt. They've seen the miracle of walking through the Red Sea. They've seen the miracle of the manna, the provision of food. How many times did God do this? He said, I've tested you these 10 times and you don't get it. You're a bunch of stupid, callous, hardened, stiff-necked people because God had not given them a heart to perceive yet at that time. How about Isaiah 29.10? For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. Jeremiah 5.21. Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. Ezekiel 12, 2, son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house which has eyes and sees but uh, does not see and ears to hear but does not hear for they are a rebellious house. Jesus speaking in Matthew 13, and in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive. John chapter 12, verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Another place, so that they should be saved. Doesn't God want people to be saved? It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, right? And yet he's purposely hardened them because we got this parenthesis in the plan. We've had the, uh, the 69 weeks and something that wasn't revealed to you. What I told you to do all the way back here, go out and be a light to the nations. You didn't do that. Well, now I'm going to start another program, the church. And when I'm done with them, we're coming back and visiting week 70. The time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week. And we're going to bring you to repentance. In the meantime, you're going to be blinded. You're going to be hardened. You're going to not understand, not hear. Um, so uh, let me see. I was in John there, I believe. Um, Acts 28, 26 and 27, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their hearts, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so I should heal them. Second Corinthians three fourteen. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. So this is what happened to Israel. Because they would not believe, God said, fine, then I'm not going to let you believe. I'm going to give you eyes that don't see the truth. They're going to be veiled from seeing the truth. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, he, uh, first, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 
He says, because Satan has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they should see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ and be saved. So this is God's doing, okay? The rest were blinded. And then notice this time, uh, Paul quotes David. He says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. This is straight out of Psalm 69, verses 22 through 23. Psalm 69 is the most quoted messianic psalm lamenting his suffering the Messiah's suffering uh, in the New Testament is the most quoted one. It is also an imprecatory psalm. Uh, Imprecatory is basically uh, looking for curses to come upon uh, the enemies of God. So you see an imprecatory psalm pronouncing a curse on the enemies of God. Okay, so who are the enemies of God if we're talking about their table becoming a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them, their eyes being darkened? Well, in this passage, it's talking about Israel. Israel, having not believed, having rejected God, radically religious, trying to establish their own righteousness through works, they became an enemy of God. Where else does it say that uh, one is an enemy of God? One that's walking according to the flesh, Romans chapter 8, is at enmity with God. The uh, unsaved mind is at enmity. It can't and it doesn't want to submit itself to the law of God. Oh, see what I'm saying? Israel, because they were in that same position, They've made themselves an enemy of God, and this uh, psalm is being used to pronounce a curse on them. Now, what does it mean by their table becoming a snare and a trap? Excuse me. Let me just get a little drink here. Uh, The table is thought to be a place of safety, feasting, and sustenance. For the ungodly and the self-righteous, it will become a snare And for Israel, the Torah was their spiritual sustenance. But because of the unbelief, it became a stumbling block and a recompense. What what do they do uh, with God's law? You're supposed to keep the Sabbath, okay? So how do you keep the Sabbath? Well, I was listening this morning, a guy was talking about this, and he goes, did you know that if you plucked a gray hair out of your head, you broke the Sabbath because that was considered reaping? We, we know that when the disciples were walking through the field, they grabbed a handful of wheat, blew the chaff off, and ate the wheat berries. They were harvesting. That's not right. They were getting lunch. What do you do? Go to the refrigerator and pull something out, throw it in the microwave? Uh, you know, they just had all of these rules and regulations, and they would say it was all out of the law. And yet, it wasn't interesting. It became a snare to them. Now, notice uh, number four, because they refused to see, their eyes were darkened. I'm not going to see, the law says, thou shalt not murder. 
thou shalt not commit adultery. What did Jesus say about both of those? If you look at a woman in lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. No, 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 no. I have never been with another woman, so I've never committed adultery. Ooh. <laughs> or murder. I have never killed anybody. You ever been angry with someone? You ever call them a knucklehead? You ever say, you're a fool. You're in danger of the fires of hell. No, 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 no. Now, I refuse to accept that. I have never killed anybody. Hmm. See, they refuse to see, so they're blinded. That's the point here. Number five, they bow down their back like a blind person, groping for their way. That's the idea of the picture there. Kind of like, okay, they got that there. You know, they're looking for where they're going to go. They really don't know. You know, <clears throat> I remember just a few years ago, pastor said something along the lines. I'm not going to give you a, a, a word-for-word quote said, we have gotten so far as the church, we've gotten so far away from what God says that I'm not sure we can find our way back. You know what Pastor was saying? That the church, let's say the church in America, had gotten so into their own traditions and stuff that when you talked about one particular subject, walking in the Spirit. When I talk about good works, I say only that which is Spirit-empowered is a good work. Why? Because Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Well, I don't know about you, but most of us in here are intelligent enough to do a little bit of study, come up with a Bible plan, and go and teach it, and people go, wow, that guy might be gifted in teaching. Might not be. But uh, we'd be able to do that. What does he mean we can't do anything? It will not have any eternal value if it's not empowered by the Spirit. See, when we look at Jesus living the life that he lived, we think, God, man, obviously it was easy for him. We need to understand something. When he came, he didn't come saying, hey guys, I'm God. Not that he didn't say that, but he wasn't looking at life from that perspective. He humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient. He walked in submission to God in full dependence upon God's provision all the time. He always did that which was pleasing to the Father. In other words, everything he did was a good work. Why? Because he was always doing it in full dependence upon that which God was giving him to do it. Oh. And yet, when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, it seems to be a foreign subject for many people in the church. Why? Because we've gotten so far away from God that we depend upon three points in a poem, three songs before, one song after. We have our little traditions that here's how we do things. Is God even included in it? Now, I'm not talking about Edgemont Bible Church per se. Have we been guilty of that in the past? I would say probably. Okay? I can tell you that there's a lot of study that goes into the messages that are brought forth here. 
And uh, we're hopefully bringing you, leading you in the right direction. But have we been blinded as a church? Well, if we think President Trump can save us, I would say, yeah, we've probably been blinded. Now, I'm not saying I didn't like him as a president. Didn't care for the way he did things at times, but he did a lot of good things. But he's not our salvation. Rebellion against the present administration is not our salvation. Though I think constitutionally we could make an argument for that. How's that one? Okay? Our salvation is found in walking with God, even if that means that we don't get through this thing alive. Okay, I'm good with that. Okay, but why? Because I can see where, as a nation, do we deserve judgment? Oh, yeah. As the church in America, as individuals within the church, have we maybe gotten a little, maybe, maybe we've hit the rock a second time. Let everybody know how important we are. Maybe we haven't literally hit a rock. But maybe it's become about the personality instead of about God. About the music instead of about God. Uh, Hannah was home this weekend, and she was talking to Lynn last night. She goes, one of the things the church has gotten wrong, and that perks my ears up. I'm watching the TV show. Pause. Come outside. Okay, what has the church gotten wrong this time? I mean, the church is getting everything wrong as far as a lot of people are concerned. So what is it this time? She goes, she was talking about the subject of uh, virginity and sexual purity and how the church communicates these kinds of things to young people. And the emphasis, as received by young people, is if you're a virgin when you get married, everything's okay. If you marry a virgin, you won't have any problems. I can see where young people have gotten that message. Is it true? Not for a minute. You're putting two sinners in the same relationship in, in one dwelling place? <laughs> no. I don't care if they're both virgins. And oh, by the way, if they're a virgin, does that mean they're sexually pure? No, far from it. So God's happy because they're a virgin, even though they're not sexually pure? No, far from it. So uh, like I say, we, have we been blinded? Well, if all we're teaching is about a virginity and not about sexual purity, and maybe the why of the sexual purity. Hey, God who loves you, who made you, knows how things work best. And that's just one more thing that causes more problems later if you don't do it the way he says it. Oh, okay. See? Now, I didn't disagree with her, but I also recognize that, you know, a lot of people complaining about uh, Jesus' bride, and they really want to be careful when they do that. But have we been blinded so that we're missing something? Or is our relationship with God what is priority, and therefore he's opening our eyes to see things? I don't know about you, but I've been saved for 41 years, and I would have to say a good portion of that time my eyes were kind of closed to a lot of things because I wasn't really working on a relationship with him as much as I was doing the Christian thing. I hopefully am concentrating a lot more on my relationship with him because he has been opening my eyes to things. But that doesn't make me feel as though everything's good. I, don't, I can relax now. Nope. Always diligently submitting myself to him. 
something to consider. Well, any questions or thought? Israel has been blinded for the time being. He is ultimately going to work with them again. They were elect, foreknown. They disregarded what was true, and therefore they've been hardened. And that's all part of God's plan. Doesn't mean that they're not in the running for a future uh, working. Okay? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your love, for your grace, and Lord, for continuing to work with us because we, well, me, we're pretty hard headed, hard hearted. Lord, open our eyes, give us grace to see truth, to understand it, and to walk in it for your honor and glory. Thank you again for what you have done, what you're doing. And Lord, we look forward to the coming of your Son. In the meantime, give us grace to understand these verses. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.